Rebecca Cohen. And I'm Maya Garantz. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. Oh man, we have such a show today. I feel like we could write a dissertation about it. And I even think maybe we could switch the tagline of our podcast to we could write a dissertation on this shit. <laughs> right? Where we get drunk and don't write a dissertation about this shit. <laughs> that would maybe be more apt. So today, um, we're going to talk about mafia movies. And of course, not just for the sake of it, but because we're going to connect it to stuff that's going on in the news and certain public figures uh, whose behavior connects. Before we can get to that, we have to do our usual thing and talk about how we're doing and uh, what we're drinking. Well, I am doing great. I got to really watch uh, Mohamed Saleh play soccer for the first time today. And boy, is that something. He's yeah. so fucking good. And he's so cute, too. I'm really excited to watch Egypt in the World Cup. And I am drinking a Tatanka which is a Polish cocktail that is apple juice and buffalo grass vodka. And it is mighty tasty. That's amazing. I've never even heard of that. I love learning about a new cocktail. It's very It's exciting. really good. How did you find out about this cocktail? Uh, I learned about it when my friend, my best friend Nikki went to Krakow. And that was like what you drink. But it's really tasty. And actually, the reason we have the buffalo grass vodka is because I bought a giant bottle of it. And we made Tatankas as cocktails when we were phone banking for Hillary. Oh. <sighs> I know. Yeah. I know. Mm. Well, drink up. Mm. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> How about you? What's going on? What are you doing? How are you drinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, I'm doing fine. Uh, I feel like I've like watched a lot of TV and, and movies the past week or two that I kind of want to talk about when we get a chance. Probably not this episode. But I did watch like four or five episodes of The New Queer Eye on Netflix, Ooh. which I'm super excited about. There's a lot going on on Queer Eye um, that mostly involves home decor, but <laughs> there's <laughs> other things too. Uh, what am I drinking? I'm drinking... Okay, I am drinking a Francis Coppola wine. Oh, missing California, are we? No. Or is this just in honor of our episode? It's, it's <laughs> in honor specifically of the Mafia episode because Coppola directed Godfather. It's a Cabernet. I don't know. My my mother-in-law gave it to us. Well, did I ever tell you about the summer that I was I was living in San Francisco and I, I actually was the receptionist at Zoetrope in the in San Francisco. No kidding. And I remember seeing the script for like virgin suicides and being like, yeah, whatever. Sophia Coppola is never going to do <laughs> shit. Yeah. Jokes on me. Jokes on me. Jokes on all of us. I think we all <laughs> had, had our doubts. But you know what? She proved us wrong. So more power to her. Absolutely. So the reason that we're bringing this up is because, as we were talking about last week, Michael Cohen, Trump's fixer, uh, his office and multiple locations got raided by the FBI as part of the Mueller investigation. <laughs> yes. 
and also James Comey is putting out his new book in which he talks about how his conversations with Trump and what Trump requested of him reminded him of mob bosses. Mm-hmm. And we realized that actually Trump in the popular imagination, mafia narratives are so inscribed in what he is on what he performs and in how a lot of the investigations into him are unfolding. Mm -hmm. So we thought we would take a deep dive into that. I think a good place to get started is to talk about mafia narratives, particularly in film and television. And what are the common conventions, tropes, themes, and motifs that we see? What, What is the mafia? Who is the mafia boss in American culture and the cultural imagination? Actually, even before we get into that, just so briefly, I do want to say that Michael Cohen, who uh, is this fixer, I just to set this up in our imagination, because I feel like when I tell you the story, you're going to fill out all of how it's painted because of the stuff you've seen in movies and TV. His uncle, Morton Levine, owned and ran a Brooklyn social club called El Caribe, which was basically the club out of which the boss of the Russian mob in the 70s and 80s ran his operations. A man named Evsey Agron and then his underboss after he was assassinated, Marat Balagula. They both ran their operations out of an office in El Caribe, where Michael Cohen grew up in Brooklyn. And Michael Cohen's father-in-law, who's this like, Ukrainian immigrant who's been in the taxi business for decades started Cohen in his business of being a lawyer with loans and taxi medallions, uh, according to a former oh, federal investigator. Yes, because I keep so, hearing about these taxi medallions in regard to the raid and how this was one of their focuses of the raid. So go on. <laughs> so basically, and a lot of all of this that I'm reading is from Talking Points Memo, which has been tracking Michael Cohen's mob connections for for months and months. They've amazing. been doing really amazing uh, journalism on this. But according to a former federal investigator who spoke to uh, one of their journalists, Michael Cohen first got his job with the Trump organization as a favor to his Ukrainian taxi business owning loan and medallions father-in-law. Now, his father-in-law has already pled guilty to felony conspiracy to defraud the IRS. Oh, my God. So, like, so as, so as Talking Points Moments often discussed, Cohen got his job in the Trump organization because he was a conduit for Russian and Ukrainian money through his father-in-law, the taxi business owner. So, (laughs) okay, okay. So, they, they have him. They have him on money laundering at least. Oh, big time. But also Michael Cohen grew up. Yeah, yeah. All of this stuff, like the idea of like the social club where the head of the Russian mafia ran his operations. You're like, oh my God, could this be any, (laughs) even the headline that, that Josh Marshall wrote was good grief. Cohen's world gets mobbier the closer I look. Just to start us off, this is what I we're think starting that's with. That's really important context. <laughs> yes. I mean, I got distracted there because I just started thinking about the case against him and uh, all the levers that 
the various investigators are going to have to try to get him to flip on Trump. And that will all be very interesting. And they'll break it down on MSNBC. So we don't have to do that. (laughs) What we're here to talk about is how much you can see in his behavior, the way that this world he came from seemed to shape the way he he, um, fashions his own image. Absolutely. And how much that world and that social imaginary fashions how Trump performs himself Mm -hmm. and how Trump performs himself and his dealings. Like, and then not just how Trump performs himself and how Michael Cohen performs himself, but then how they are read by the larger culture and even by the people who defend them Mm -hmm. the most. And I think that they get away with a lot of the shit that they get away with um, in the culture because they're attached to this performance of the mob. So let's talk about what that is. Yes. And what that means. So the gangster genre goes back to the era of silent cinema. And we're not talking about every gangster movie that ever was, because that's a much longer conversation that we can have. But there are certain um, themes that sort of carry through from the very beginning of the genre. Um, Most people think of like Public Enemy and Scarface from the 30s, those sort of Jimmy Cagney movies as being the perfect examples of the early genre. They sort of set the mold for what gangster movies were. And a lot of the themes you see in those do carry through, even through more contemporary mafia movies. You see them usually portraying immigrant families and addressing questions of crime and the ways that class and urban life kind of can lead young men into crime. And they often follow this rise and fall narrative that uh, the, the young man enters criminal life and starts to become more wealthy and powerful, then reaches a zenith where he uh, loses perspective, makes mistakes, and then there's inevitably a fall. And, and, and I think one of the things that we're meant to see as heroic is the fact that he enters this life and he's good at it. And yes. we're supposed to respect that. Like his, his ability to excel in this world is what we admire. I also briefly want to say what's interesting about the immigrant narrative is that in a lot of ways, mob stories are uh, stories about assimilation in some way, Mm -hmm. because they're about the fact that you can or cannot assimilate. I think it's really perfect that the Godfather opens with this monologue of the undertaker who's like, I was trying to assimilate, I was trying to assimilate, and now I'm not getting the justice that I need, so I have to go back to the Godfather to like get me that justice. Because there's stories about people who, because they're not allowed to assimilate, because they're outsiders, have to establish their own codes of protection, Mm -hmm. of law, because the police are not going to do it. The police are going to exploit them. The current culture is not going to accept them. So they create a parallel outside framework. And that leads to the rise. And that also leads to the fall. Yeah. I mean, you could even read them as a critique of capitalism. In, in a lot of ways, it, the legitimate paths are always impossible in the gangster movies. And that may be because the character is an outsider, often because they're an immigrant. That tends to be more true in older gangster movies. In more recent ones, like 
well, I guess it's not that recent, but Goodfellas is the one I'm thinking of, where the legitimate path isn't closed off to the character, but it's mentally and emotionally suffocating to him. Mm-hmm. And and so in that way, that film's more of a critique of capitalism than almost any of them. Right. It, it, it's, right. it's almost about his personal fulfillment as much as material achievement of the American dream. But yeah, there is this consistent theme of working outside the boundaries of w- what's legitimate and what's legal and what's sanctioned in order to achieve what you're supposed to want, which is wealth and power. So the gangster almost always loses out in the end. Generally, the, the, these movies and television shows ostensibly are not advocating criminality. They're supposed to be showing you the horrors of the violence involved and the toll that it takes on the family and ultimately the toll it takes on them where they wind up dead or in prison or, you know, suffocating in the witness protection program, whatever it may be. While also, while also, as much as we're supposed to be horrified by this violence, of course, the violence is also very like sexy and sensational and very exciting and very like yeah but that's the the whole thing it's yeah the violence is titillating but all of it is most people's takeaway from gangster films tends to not be what a tragedy they were and what bad decisions those gangsters made (laughs) but rather glorification of the gangster lifestyle of the mafia And that goes back to what you were saying a moment ago about the mobster as being this figure who's supposed to be very smart, uh, who's supposed to be very competent, maybe not smart, but at least very competent. And so when you portray this, well, anti-hero, really, who's super competent at something, it's inevitable that the audience is going to experience identification and pleasure at that character's success. And even the violence gives pleasure because the violence is put in this context of revenge and power. So the violence occurs because someone has disrespected or slighted the mafia member or the mafia don, and they have to be put in their place. And and so the violence is equated with power. Yeah. The violence is always somehow justified. This is the world. This is this world. And it just, and so you want to see like, if this is the world and if this is the way to win, you want your hero to win according to that world. And the world has its own rules. They have their own. Every mafia has its code. So it could be viewed as as honorable. And yes, they are protecting their families, both their mafia families and their literal wives and children families. And so there's also this element of masculinity. Oh my God. Yeah, a huge through line. I mean, I think part of the reason this is so live for me right now is that for once, Godfathers 1, 2, and we don't talk about 3, are on Netflix. So Ah. I've been like re-engaging with these movies in a very, very juicy and deep way. And there's that part where Marlon Brando is like, men can never be careless. Women and children can be careless, but not men. And you're like... Fuck you. But it's still, it's like, that's so determined the fantasy and the appeal of these movies, mm-hmm. particularly to men. Oh, yeah. Is that there is this 
this kind of masculinity that is so deep in these movies. And it's it's very patriarchal in the most like traditional classic sense of that word. The mafia don is the patriarch. He is the head of the family. He takes care of everyone. He provides for everyone. He protects everyone. And he also disciplines those who get out of line. It's, That's right. It, it's so super patriarchal. And that that is tied in and conflated with his violence because the reason he's able to provide for the family and be the head of the family is because the violence makes him powerful. But also he's setting up a structure for the world. And when people don't go according to that structure, it's like they're asking for the violence. They deserve it. Mm -hmm. They've earned it. They're the ones who are bad. And I feel like this is where you, you wrote a note that this is like, there's an implicit critique of American society in mob movies the cops are crooked. The legitimate path to success are suffocating. Like the only this, there's something noble that we see even in this violence because, because this patriarchal structure works. It is a parallel world that works. And so we're supposed to see these men in some ways Mm -hmm. as, as noble, as heroic. I will say two things to that. One is that I don't think there's anyone who could watch The Godfather and see the scene where Sonny goes and beats up his sister's husband. All right, we've got to wrap this segment up in just a second. But you know the scene where Sonny beats up his sister's husband? Do I know it? I actually, for a performance that I did, I actually learned it beat by beat. And we performed it as this like physical dance where we did every (laughs) single movement of that scene. I know. Oh, I know that scene. Oh, my God. Amazing. Okay. Well, the reason, of course, that he does that is because the husband's been beating his sister, his wife beater. And I mean, could nothing could be m- more patriarchal, right? This like man beating up another man to protect the woman. But who doesn't enjoy, like it's so gratifying. And you know it's the wrong thing and Sonny's not supposed to do it. And, and she has asked him not to do it. The other thing is the end of the film where, you know, Michael takes his place as Godfather in essentially a bloodbath. You can write whatever interpretation, you can read that film however you want, but come on, everyone is experiencing gratification in that moment. Everyone is experiencing this pleasure of seeing him take his rightful place, seeing him take his power over the other families. And the other families, the other families who, by the way, fucking deserved it. Right. I mean, that's the thing. They fucking deserved it. They Mm -hmm. did things that were fucked up. And so they waited and they bided their time. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, they played the long game of getting them back. And it's very like, yeah, you absolutely root for them. You root for them and you enjoy the violence. And as much as the whole movie is about Michael not wanting to be a gangster, as an audience member, you want him to do it and you're happy when he does. Oh, because there's a way in which the other sons, I, I, I can never think of Frida without thinking of Don Jr. Um, 
<laughs> yes, it's true. But Eric but and Don a, Jr., they're just not. Well, I mean, but isn't that interesting that whenever people talk about Don Jr., they immediately call him Frito. And it's because the family, the Trump family is such a fucking mob organization. We don't even have like narratives that we connect them to. In some ways, that's our first place where we see that link. Everybody's like Don Jr., Frito. But anyway, there is a way that with with Michael, you realize he's fighting it in some ways because he is the most intelligent, the most capable. Mm-hmm. He's the one who could have escaped. And in some ways that makes him the greatest person to take that role and that the other sons are not worthy of taking that role. So when he's the one who can step into it, we're meant to feel bad that he couldn't escape, but also like we want the the best candidate for the job <laughs> to take the job and that's him. Yes. Okay, so then how does this connect to Trump? Because Trump ain't Michael. No. You know what I mean? It's not like he's a smart businessman. <laughs> but there is a way in which the idea of the alternate rules of a business structure, which does not go according to the rules of the normal political structure, in some ways I feel like the ways in which the Republican Party has gotten its followers to buy in. Mm-hmm. And I think now a lot of the people in the Republican Party are like, oh, we're so fucked. That was a mistake. Um, <laughs> but I think that what allowed Trump to be popular is this idea that the government is corrupt. And here is a guy who has been successful on these other terms. That's interesting because... Certainly, a lot of Trump's popularity and his ability to sell himself as a political figure rest on his claims of business success that people don't examine very deeply. And they're like, well, he sat in a big chair on TV and fired people, so he must really be a business mogul. But what you are suggesting seems to be that even as it becomes evident that he was doing a lot of shady shit that doesn't even harm his public image among certain people because that's what they bought into in the first place. I think so. They were like the legit shit isn't working. The supposedly above board stuff isn't, or, or maybe it's that, yeah, all cops are corrupt. All politicians are corrupt. So at least this is our corrupt guy. Yes. And, and they can fill in, this backstory of a guy who, I mean, he's loyal to his family. His family are the people who are like sitting there with him in the office. He owned casinos. I mean, come on. It's like, that's totally, he's like this New York guy with this like New York accent. He's involved in all of these very like New Yorky things. I feel like he has been playing that part from the beginning. And the fact that whatever. It's because he has dementia, but it's like the only people he can trust are his family members. Even before the sundowning stuff started, he only trusted family. He was, but but a big part of that is narcissism. 
A big part of that is he sees his children as extensions of himself and the only person he really trusts is himself. Right. And, and that actually makes me think about the extent to which mafia movies are about narcissism. Mm. And the mafia it, the mafia figure is this n- kind of narcissistic figure who thrives on control, power over other people. A lot of it is this sort of special privileges. Like I think I keep going back to the scene in Goodfellas where he takes his date to the club and they go in the back door through the kitchen in that really super long take with the steady Yeah, cam. yeah, yeah. And how what's being highlighted there is <laughs> the way that he doesn't go in through the front door through the legitimate correct way. He has this other way of going in that goes through the kitchen, but it brings him to this special front seat table just for him yes. where he is the guest of honor kind of there's something there's a connection there to me this idea like about being outside the rules not necessarily the separate set of rules and codes that the mafia has per se but more this like i am too special to follow your regular rules you know, even at the beginning of the movie, like a teacher sends a letter home saying he's failing and the gangsters go and beat up the teacher because they want him to keep missing school so he can keep helping them out. And right. there's just this tremendous pleasure in that scene. It's a fantasy scene for the viewer of having gangsters go beat up someone who is legitimately doing their job and trying to help you. <laughs> right? But... But it's that power. It's that don't cross me. I'm a 13-year-old kid and don't fucking cross me. Yes. <laughs> and yes. and I see that so much with, with Trump. Like that that's how he sees himself. He he sees himself as having special privilege, entitled to special privilege, and so much that like don't ever cross me or you'll pay attitude. Well, and that's the thing about, I mean, just going back to Stormy Daniels, the idea of like, having somebody show up at her car when she's putting her kid in the car and be like, it'd be a terrible thing if somebody, you know, something happened to her mom. Like, like, and, and there was some article that I read where this is something Trump does. Oh yeah. He gets people to like go and make these threats all the time. Like this is a thing. This is a thing. And I feel like it's interesting that you say that this is how he reads himself. So there's the Mm -hmm. part of it that how that's how the public reads him and gives him permission based on this template of how to be a powerful person in the world. Um, It's like that thing that I read somewhere where Trump is like the poor man's idea of what a rich man is and the dumb man's idea of what a smart man is and the the failed person's idea of what a successful person is. It's like this fantasy That the rich man both, yeah, enters the back door to sit in the front seat. And then there's this other side of it where it's how he also views himself. Mm -hmm. That he is this kingpin. That he is this like mafia don. Like there's this performance that he's doing. Yeah, he's literally asking people for their loyalty. 
Oh my god. And he's and he's rewarding people for what he perceives as their loyalty and punishing people for what he perceives as disloyalty constantly. And this is actually one of the things I have to say that and another thing that made us think about this isn't it so crazy that all of these people who are Trump's people mm-hmm. who are like like people who are like for Trump are on TV openly wondering whether Cohen is going to flip on him. Now, the traditional line (laughs) in politics is to say, Cohen can say whatever he's going to say. My, you know, Trump has never done anything wrong. Like that's the traditional line. That's what you're supposed to say. No, what that's what you're supposed to say. Zero people are saying that, including Trump's defenders. (laughs) What they're saying is, yeah, we don't know if he's going to tell. And you're like, whoa, whoa, how revealing is that? Do you even see how revealing that is? It's amazing. so fucking dumb. I They're, can't. But that's the thing. He's so bad at being this figure that he oh. sees himself as and that so many of his supporters see him as. I feel like there's two types of people. Um, okay, I'm going to set this up with a little story. When I was a teacher. So one great piece of advice I got when I was a teacher teaching middle school was be the godfather. The godfather never makes threats. The godfather is powerful. And everybody knows that if you cross him, you will wake up with the horse's head in your bed. He doesn't have to tell you that. He doesn't have to threaten you. He doesn't have to yell or scream. He's quiet and calm. You cross him, you pay the price, other people see it, and that's how that works. And I'm telling you, that works great in um, disciplining children, by the way. <laughs> uh, never make threats. So I feel like there's two kinds of people with with looking at Trump. And they're the people who understand that about the Godfather, and they're the people who don't. There's the mm. people who see Trump being like, my nuclear button's bigger than yours, I'm Mr. Tough Guy, I'm the best, and are like, he's really fucking tough, he's great. <laughs> And there's right. other people who just implicitly understand that if you have to say that you're tough, you're not. Yeah. If you have to make threats and and basically be a big loudmouth bully, then you're not in charge. There's there's there are alarm. Well, this brings us actually perfectly to the to the characters of the fixer and the moguls. Yeah, well, in our next episode, we should continue mm-hmm. this conversation. Oh my God. You don't even, if all of you, you should see the outline that we have. <laughs> it is like, we literally could write a dissertation on Trump and like we the figure of the mafia. Bullet we have a points lot. within bullet points. There's <laughs> oh my God. so much. So we will continue this in our next episode. We do need to talk about the character of the fixer and the how character that plays of the in. fixer and then the character of the business mogul. And I think that is like, Trump and Michael Cohen, and we're going to get into that. Okay. We do have to give away a hot sauce award and a weak sauce award before we go. Um, can I do the hot sauce, please, please? Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I think hot sauce is Beyonce. 
Hot sauce is of always course. Beyonce. I mean, yeah. It's always Beyonce, but I feel like we have a whole ep- I have a whole episode about Beyonce in me mm. because there are many things that I can say about her as this ultra capitalist figure as the ultimate appropriator and absorber of other people's creative work. Hmm. I mean, there are many critical things to get into. Now, putting that aside, um, which is a conversation we will have, this woman had twins 10 months ago Hmm. and went on stage and did a fucking two hour long fucking beat you down crazy ass Coachella set two weekends in a row hundreds of HBCU fucking marching band musicians step dancers like what she is the hardest working woman in show business Mm -hmm. she's one of the greatest entertainers of all time (laughs) and she is all, and I'm obsessed with her and as and I have been for years and she is just hot sauce. I mean hot sauce doesn't even doesn't begin to cover it. The hottest. Okay, but we do also have a weak sauce award. Mm. We are awarding the weak sauce to Kevin D. Williamson, mm. whom we mentioned uh, in a previous episode. Because he was hired by The Atlantic to be a conservative columnist and then pretty quickly thereafter fired when people took note of uh, some things he said about how uh, people who have abortions should be hanged. Yeah. I mean, among other things, he said a lot of outrageous shit. He's kind of a piece of shit. And we talked and we talked, you know, about how conservative columnists are stuck in this thing where to be successful as conservatives, they have to be like insane crazy trolls Mm -hmm. and that makes them not very horrible when they want to join the mainstream (laughs) media right exactly but um the reason we're giving him weak sauce this week is because he published a a whiny ass rant about how he was silenced okay okay he published two whiny ass rants he did Seriously, he published one today in the Weekly Standard about how, like, I was going to write about my complex views on abortion for New York Magazine, and I even offered to do it for free, and they didn't want my article. People don't like me. Oh, I, I, I did miss that second one. Mm. Hmm. He's just going by the playbook they always go by, the typical, like... I lost my platform because I was a piece of shit. So that means that I'm being silenced by bullies. It's an internet outrage mob. They never gave me a chance to explain the nuance of my views. That women should be hung for having abortions. And yet somehow both of his whiny ass, I'm being silenced publications are in the wall street journal. And then the weekly standard. I'm like, what what well the wall street journal is um it's owned by rupert murdoch now right yes what do you Mm -hmm. want what do you want well also i do have to say so um jeet here wrote this great thing that i wanted to mention about um how his wall street journal account of how he got fired is total bullshit Mm. and 
part of it is that he calls Williamson on a bunch of stuff that he did write. So he's like, I didn't write this thing where I called an African-American child a monkey. And, oh, God. And then yeah, he, yeah. like, quotes it. He where just he, like, brings the receipts. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he just brings the receipts. But also... Um, so in addition to bringing the receipts of things that he actually fucking wrote, um, G here was like, also, I requested to do a Q&A in the New Republic about the situation. And Williamson Ugh. super rejected it and insulted him and said that he and the magazine are mosquitoes. So like... <laughs> So yeah. he's he's well, just full of shit. Well, he's link, just full of shit. We'll link to Jeet here's Twitter thread about it so you can read up about like what or baby Williamson clearly is. It's weak. Just so weak, weak. sauce. The definition oh, of weak sauce. As we always uh, or have recently ended, <laughs> drunk o meter. Hmm. How drunk are we, Rebecca? I think we should maybe rebrand this to match our sauce theme and call it like the sauce o meter or something. But we can talk about that later. Uh, okay, I'm gonna. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'm gonna say like maybe four. I don't know. It's hard to judge. I did definitely drink before we started. I had wine with dinner, and I just sort of kept it rolling. And so we'll leave it at that. Well, I'm not as drunk as I would like to be. Mm. I'm I'm only at kind of a two or a three, and I slammed a very large amount of vodka, buffalo grass vodka, very quickly. So I am frustrated with my lack uh, of drunkenness. Well, mm. you're gonna we're gonna need to keep you drinking then. Mm-hmm. Pour yourself another glass. Okay. You can find us at at sauce podcast on Twitter and anywhere that you get your tweeting needs. You can email <laughs> us at saucepodcast at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes. Yes. Tell the world how brilliant we are. Please do. More people need to know. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at gynostar. I'm um, also on Instagram as at gynostar. Maya, where can people find you directly? I'm just mayagarantz.com at Twitter. They're just That's just what I am just everywhere. I just use my name. You just look up my you. name. You it's can easy. find me. You can write me. All right. I don't, I don't, have, I don't have bots protecting me. We want to hear from you. Till next time. Adios, amibas. Adios, amibas.